There was a moment in my life uh, when I was visiting my home church and I was invited to preach as this always happened. And that moment I realized that I have nothing to share. I can share great ideas, theories, theological, you know, discoveries, but my heart is empty to, to, to present a sermon. So at that moment, I realized that I have to I have to study Bible also in a different way. So as as a um, as a average disciple of Jesus, without highly academic instruments, I have to read the Bible as a, as a Christian. When you think about the profound influence of the Bible on the world, the way that it has shaped our culture. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it's probably a good idea that you know at least what it says. It's going to be about us taking and reading the Bible. Welcome to the Take and Read podcast. My name is Chad Warren. Uh, I am so excited to have you join us. This is your first time joining the Take and Read podcast. Excited to have you here. This is a, an opportunity where we take and we read the Bible. I'll have a different guest on every week, and uh, we hope that you track along with us. Uh, today's guest, I'm very excited. Uh, we have another visitor from afar. Uh, I have with me Yvonne Rusin, uh, Dr. Yvonne Rusin, if you will. He and I have been friends for now for several years. Uh, we met uh, several uh, a few years ago. I was had the opportunity to travel to Ukraine. And uh, he is the president of Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary. And uh, we'll talk about what that is, but just to very basic level, a seminary is a schooling or a place that one would go in order to study theology, to study ministry. Uh, there's a lot of different programs within seminaries, but at its basic level, it's where people called to the ministry, called to pastoral ministry, uh, go to study, to train, be equipped, to go and shepherd a flock of believers. And so, Yvonne, welcome. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, do you remember when we first met? Yes. It was in First Baptist Church. Okay. It was here. Yes. Uh, and then I got to travel uh, over to visit you on your turf, and you had invited me to come uh, with another gentleman from our church uh, to teach and I got to engage with your students a little bit and teach a, then it was a seminar. Yes. And at that point you were like, okay, he maybe knows a little something. So you invited me to come back. I came back a year later and you had me teach for a whole week. And uh, it's been a joy. I look forward, forward to coming back again, if you'll have me. But uh, it's been a joy. So tell me a little bit about your role at the seminary. Well, I serve as a president of the seminary and a professor of missions. So I do a leadership job and also I am involved in teaching and uh, I enjoy both part of my ministry. So leadership and teaching, you get to lead the other faculty and professors at the seminary. How many professors, faculty, how many are we talking? Well, we are talking about about 20 people that are involved in teaching, like working full time. Okay. And then how many students would you say? We have usually 550, 600 students. Okay. That's a lot of, that's a lot of kids. Yeah. They're not all kids, though. They're grown-ups. And... Yeah, some of them are older than I am. Now, I'd love for you to just speak into just a little bit the importance of what you do in the context in which you do it. Tell us about Ukraine. Tell us about the importance of the work of ministry of training pastors and leaders in the Christian worldview? Well, uh, we strongly believe that uh, theological education and training for ministry is essential for church mission. And especially in our Ukrainian context, we had 70 years of atheism where church has been heavily persecuted. And uh, now we have uh, huge freedom to do ministry. But we have a very big uh, question of identity and relevancy. 
how we can be faithful to the gospel in our context and how our churches, our pastors will be relevant to our our situation. So uh, I am using a lot this metaphor uh, for Ukrainian context that it seems that very often we have a huge bag full of answers for questions that nobody asks. Mm. Ukraine is going through a very difficult and painful process. And our society developed absolutely new questions. They are looking for guidance. They are looking for answers. What are some of those questions? Well, about future of our country, about war, reconciliation, peacemaking. Yeah, you, you live in a context in which war is more normal than peace. Yeah. So yeah. I imagine if you go out talking about the gospel and that he is a God of peace and the gospel brings peace, there might be some skeptics. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you that my theology has been not reshaped, but maybe refined. Okay. Because I was, I was teaching a lot about peacemaking, forgiveness. Yeah. Because I didn't know what does it mean when you lose somebody you know. So mm-hmm. now when we, war is part of our life, when every day we hear reports that people are killed. So we have different, different thoughts. And uh, I think that now Ukrainian church is more equipped to serve our society because we going through this pain together with people. And uh, another very important thing for our ministry is, uh, are we able to be a community of reconciliation. You know, we know that one day this war will be over mm. and we will meet with other Ukrainians who are on the other side. They have their own stories. Will we be able to facilitate this moment when these two stories will meet? Mm. Can we help them to reconcile? Yeah. And I strongly believe the church has potential and call to be such a community. Yeah. So how do we equip our pastors, leaders, counselors, that they can lead our nation to this moment. Wow. So, yeah, I remember visiting uh, and you took me to the downtown square of Kiev and showed me where during the revolution of 2013, 2014, snipers killed as thousands are gathered. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Snipers killed a hundred people. Yeah. And to, to go there and to see just the small memorials that are set up and the pictures and realize these people, they were regular people. They had families, jobs. To then talk to the a people that is affected by that kind of violence and say, there's a point at which you have to forgive, that we as believers are called to forgive even our enemies. You've got a tall task, my friend. Yeah, and there is a there is a dangerous in this process, uh, not to provide very easy, shallow answers to right. very deep questions. Right. So we have to equip our people that they they will take seriously the depths of that pain. So, and uh, there is no space for populism. Mm. There is no space for uh, big statements. So first, we have to be among our people. And we have to remember that healing and restoration is a very complicated and long process. Yes, it is. That's a good reminder. Well, we could we could truly talk about that this whole time. Uh, what I'd love to know and what I, I usually ask of first-time guests uh, is, tell me a little bit about your kind of history with the Bible is if you can recall back uh, to when you first encountered the scriptures, what was that like? What was going on in your life? What was going on in your country maybe at the time? And what do you remember or recall about the Bible in those earliest days? And then how has that understanding developed over time? And then I want to also know what is your time like now in the Bible? I was born in the west part of Ukraine, and Ukraine was at that moment part of Soviet Union. Okay. 
Soviet Union was atheistic. Atheistic, and, uh, yeah. meaning they rejected the idea that God existed. Yeah, and they persecuted uh, every Christian. Okay. So my parents and my grandma, they were members of underground church. At that moment, it was almost impossible to have uh, so many Bibles like we have right now. I don't know how, but somehow my uh, parents, they, uh, they bought just a New Testament. And we had one New Testament, one book for entire family. Just the New Testament? Just the New Testament. Okay. Well, actually, before that, it was quite difficult to get and to, to purchase a Bible, it would cost you a lot. Okay. So, and we were very happy that we have at least New Testament. And it was written in an old, um, like Slavic uh, language. With the, so it was not like a contemporary uh, Russian or Ukrainian. Right. So it would be in our context, similar to like the King James version yeah. of the Bible, which yeah. was very Shakespearean sounding. Yeah. Yes. So, and uh, my uh, grandma, she was a very devoted uh, Christian. Actually, she was the first in our family who became a believer. She had a big problem with her health, and somebody told her, God exists, and if you ask, he will heal you. So, uh, when she was uh, at home by herself, she just kneeled down and said, God, if you exist, please heal me. And this is what happened. She was healed? Yes. Right there. Never in her life she had that problem again. So she became uh, first belie- like believer in our family, then her husband, and then my parents. And we lived together in a very small uh, building. So, and uh, she asked me every evening to read a New Testament for her. And her favorite book was uh, the Matthew Gospel. So every evening I was reading Matthew Gospel to her. The Gospel of Matthew I every was, night. I was maybe seven years old. So the first, actually, the first book that I was reading in my life, it was the Matthew Gospel. And uh, then she she really uh, liked to pray a lot, and her prayers still is the more the longest in my life. <laughs> <laughs> she prayed for everything and everybody. So and then we finished with uh, Lord's Prayer. So I was reading the Matthew Gospel. And I, at that time, I had no idea what does it mean. Okay. So, uh, and this is how um, the gospel became part of my life in a very early age. Very early. And somehow I got this dream to become a minister and to get theological education. And I had no idea what does it mean, theological education, because we had no seminaries in, in Ukraine yeah. at that moment. So, um, well, and you've told me stories of growing up that, it was a very covert activity for you to worship with other believers. To be a Christian at, at that time growing up, you guys had to hide. Yeah. You had to meet in the forest. You guys would gather in the woods, have a have church. You would have a time of worship. Someone would teach. You would read. You would pray. And then you would kind of disband. And, and you would move from house to house so that... The government couldn't find you or learn of your meetings. What happens if they find you? Well, if you have a, a meeting in your house, like for example, we have a worship meeting at your house. Right. There is a high chance that you will be arrested for five years and your property will be confiscated. So after five years in prison, you'll come out and you'll have nothing. Yeah. So you have to really believe. <laughs> <laughs> that, that weeds out some people that yeah. are just hanging out being a Christian because they like the donuts. So you are, you are like 100% sure that everybody who attend, they are true believers. Mm. <laughs> they don't want to risk it. Yeah, so that is intense. I have these memories from my early years of my life when uh, my parents take me to forests, to different houses. And uh, later, uh, my mom, she knows, uh, she's a musician. Okay. So she started uh, a first worship team in our church. And I have some pictures in my memory when different people are coming to our house in different time, like 15, one came, and then after 15, another one. So just it will not be suspicious that 
many people coming to our home and they are practicing uh, some songs. So I have this, uh, these memories. Oh, that's great. So then you, you go on, you, you get a training as a pastor and you go to seminary, you, uh, study theology. You're now a pastor of a church. You've recently planted a church there in, in the capital. Uh, and you're the president of a seminary training other pastors and missionaries, not just from Ukraine, but throughout um, Central Asia yeah. and Eastern Europe. Like you've, there's quite a big deal going on over there. What does your time with the Bible look like now? Because there's, it can be a, it can be tempting when you start to move along in theological education to feel like you've got to do more complicated things or some people just get away from reading the Bible because they spend their time teaching it all the time. Do you continue to have a, a personal time in the Bible? Well, I have um, my own journey with the Bible. Uh, for last 25 years, I am studying Bible, let's say professionally yeah. as, as a scholar. There was a moment in my life uh, when I was visiting my home church and I was invited to preach as this always happened. And that moment I realized that I have nothing to share. I can share great ideas, theories, uh, theological, you know, discoveries, but my heart is empty to, to, to present a sermon. So at that moment, I realized that I have to I have to study Bible also in a different way. So as as a um, as a average disciple of Jesus, without highly academic instruments, I have to read the Bible as a, as a Christian. So from that moment, I can say that I am studying Bible from different positions. I'm doing it professionally with all libraries and tools, but also I do it uh, in a very simple way. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I try to motivate myself uh, and to keep, uh, to to have uh, like a system. I am failing most often <laughs> as this. And I have um, Bible reading plans. I am always behind, but at yes, least I, yes. I am moving. So you're, you're mere mortal. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. good. So uh, the best time for me uh, now to read Bible uh, is mornings. So okay. when I wake up and I use my, my iPad and I am reading Bible just like for my soul. And recently... Not to get ready to teach it. No. Not to share some great truth with somebody else. No. You just are there to nourish your own soul. Yeah. Amen. And I try to develop this uh, habit when, when I read a few verses. Sometimes I read, read like 20, 30 minutes, sometimes just a few seconds, just one verse. And then I try, when I am driving, uh, I try to reflect uh, on this uh, uh, like portion of the Bible. And I found it very beneficial. I just, I just feel how it is like building my spirit and how Bible is relevant in my, uh, in, in my life. And recently, I uh, started to enjoy, the, like, on one hand, Bible is a very complicated book, but on the other hand, it's a very simple book. So simplicity of the Bible, this is what I really like. So um, I read Bible almost every day. It does not mean that, you know, I, I read like 10, 10 chapters. And there was a time in my life when I was trying to impress my friends that I read Bible many times. So I developed my own reading plan. Okay. So if you read 10 chapters per day, uh, you can read entire Bible, something about like three months. Oh, wow. So you just, you know, <laughs> reading and you don't. And <laughs> That's a full-time job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but uh, yes, I have my own practice of reading Bible. So it typically is in the morning. Yeah. And uh, pretty early in the morning? Yeah. And is there coffee involved? Of course. <laughs> uh, and let me ask you this. This has been a, an interesting topic of conversation. The role of brushing your teeth in the morning. Do you brush your teeth first thing in the morning? Do you drink your coffee and then brush your teeth? 
Um, Is this a weird question for you? Well, uh, I might sound not spiritual now, uh, but the first thing I do, I drink coffee and then everything else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, my friend, are not alone, okay? I can appreciate the first order of business, coffee, the scriptures, and then we'll get to the rest of the day. I appreciate that. Well, uh, again, Yvonne, it is a joy uh, to have you on this uh, podcast. And we're going to do what we came to do. We're going to take and we're going to read. So, uh, as you know, uh, I told you in advance, I wasn't going to tell you what we're reading. So you don't know what we're going to jump into. And I I do that because I don't want there to be some sense of preparation. I, I do not want people to think that we have to somehow study up before we get to the Bible, but that we are to be a people that simply daily take and read the scriptures we ask God for guidance, and he helps us understand his word. And so, uh, uh, yeah, so Lord, we ask you that you would give us insight, that you'd give us, uh, open our hearts and our eyes to see and behold wondrous things from your word. And so we will do that now. So we're going to be in the gospel of Mark, not Matthew, even though that's what you first started with in your life. In we'll chapter. We are in chapter two. And uh, as we look at this, we're going to be at the very end of chapter 2 in verse 23. So Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 27. Let us read. One Sabbath he was going, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Alrighty, so we we see in this passage, and what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, just uh, as a way of reminder, We understand Mark to be the earliest account of the life and ministry of Jesus. We believe that it it is the product of Peter's preaching. We know that John Mark was a companion of Paul and Peter at various times. Uh, But we understand that this is an account that comes directly from one of the apostles uh, by way of John Mark. And, And so there's a particular task that Mark has. He's trying to make the case, as he gives this account, that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And so that's there's particular things that God is revealing by his Holy Spirit through this human author, John Mark, about Jesus, so that we can have that today. And so one of the first things we jump into, Yvonne, is we ask questions about what does it say? We want to make sure we clearly understand what's being said. So as you look at this text, are there some things that you think would need clarifying that might be just at first glance, okay, what is that? What do, what do we make of this? Well, it's a interesting text where Jesus is touching the very like holy stuff. Yeah, he's messing with things that are very sacred to the Jews. Well, um, is that what you're saying? Since English is not my first language, so yes. I, I'm not sure will I be able to express in an understandable way. But when I read this passage, it seems for me that Jesus wants wants to speed up the process. So he wants to go f- faster to crucifixion. <laughs> He's doing things that are going to get him in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Because Intentionally. Yeah. He's stirring the pot. And uh, I will introduce some uh, history of Mark and how it was composed. 
So some people say that uh, the Mark Gospel is like a um, uh, story about passion with land long introduction. But Jesus' cross is the, the, the center. So by passion, you mean the events around the crucifixion. Yeah. yeah. That, that's what in theological terms, the passion of the Christ is the the events surrounding the crucifixion. Yeah, like a climax of the, of yes. the gospel. So, but everything is moving toward that process. And with this uh, words and action, just like speed up the process <laughs> because uh, Sabbath is very, very important thing right. for, for Jewish people. And so, yeah, talk about what do we need to understand about the Sabbath to better understand what, what's happening here? Um, the Sabbath is uh, is something instituted by God. Yes. Right? It we, we goes all the way back to even the days of creation. Yep. That on the, um, he, God created through six days. On the seventh, he rested. He Sabbathed. And then he institutes for the people a Sabbath rest. There would be a day, he, he indicates to Moses, that there is six days of work, but on a seventh, you'll rest. There was the collecting of manna, and there was something different about manna on that seventh day, that day of rest. So what? What? how does Sabbath and our understanding of it help us understand this context? This text and the main idea, what I see in, in this text, really resonates to my heart and to my uh, recent thinking. Uh, there is... Uh, problem in our pilgrimage with God when uh, we start to misuse his commandments when uh, ritual become more important than person say that again when ritual become more important than person when the ritual becomes more important than yeah. the person so Sabbath has a, like a lot of different connotations in the Bible, and we don't have time to, to explore right, everything. Right. But one dimension of Sabbath that I truly appreciate, which makes Bible so relevant, uh, book for our life. This is about human dignity, about justice. Because of Sabbath, the most... Uh, like the last uh, slave, the more the less significant slave in our community, at least can be guaranteed to have one uh, holiday in the week. So you're saying the most, maybe even destitute or the lowest in the social rung of society, is at least given the dignity of one day of no work, yeah, of rest. Yeah, and this what amazed me. Bible was written many, many years ago. And some people say from secular uh, sphere, like, Bible is very old, it's not relevant. Come on. This is about social justice. Hmm. This is about dignity. So I am very impressed with this. So, and Jesus said that, uh, like, the person is about Sabbath. So our, our rituals, our practices have to bring good to people. And when we are doing uh, rituals, we don't make God to be God. He is God anyway. When we make human human, this is when he is glorified. Mm. So I see, I believe that the will of God is a blessing for people, for, for, for humans. So, and... Uh, I just see uh, that every person has a dignity and the uh, Bible speaks a lot about justice and care. So when he gets into this, he starts telling a story about David. Who's he talking about? He says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? Why would you think he brings in David? Uh, it's We're good, talking about the king, yeah, King David, who was, in terms of Jewish history, he would have been a very prominent historical figure. There were a lot of kings of Israel, but David is one of the prominent ones. 
and there was this idea that his prominence in this situation that even David superseded maybe tradition religious practice and that there was a time in which David was in need and his soldiers and so they did what was not lawful on the Sabbath is there anything that we should know about this kind of violating the rules? Well, what I want to tell and underline, Jesus does not teach us to break rules. He teaches us what these rules mean. What they really mean. Really means. Yeah. So he is going uh, like to, a, to the deeper level. He speaks about not actions, but he speaks about motives. So it we can not actions but motives. motives. Okay. So and it's vividly depicted in the Matthew Gospel, right? For example, but we can uh, wrongly understand this passage like, okay, Jesus wants us to break all the rules. He wants us to break the rules. <laughs> we should just yeah. Who so cares? This is not this text. Not about that. Okay. So, but this text uh, reveals proper understanding of traditions and lift up human dignity. So, uh, and I think this is a very powerful text. Maybe you can tell more about why he asked, uh, why he mentioned David. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that David would have been a prominent figure. He brings up this this example that is assumed they would remember and they would know about that there was a time in which somebody uh, in Jewish history also violated this Sabbath rule uh, and that it wasn't just somebody, but it was King David. And so maybe it's, it's uh, kind of alluding to his prominence. Uh, we know that there is a prophecy to David that the son of that his son, the son of David, uh, the son of man, which he's alluded to here in verse 28. Um, and so I don't know if there's some reference there for David and Jesus and some sort of connection there. But I think the, the, the most primary kind of example here is, is to what you're saying, that the Sabbath existed to be a blessing, not a burden. That the Sabbath wasn't created to be oppressive on individuals, but to be a blessing for individuals. But what had happened in the life of Israel at this point is that the Sabbath was just one example in which humans have taken something that is good from God and it, it has now become a burden. It has become oppressive. It has become this thing that's used to put people down and in their place rather than what God has indicated is this is for your good. This is to be a blessing. And, and so I think that there's some connection there uh, between this idea of burden and blessing. And he even says in, in 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But we tend to do that. We tend to take good things from God and we, we make them a burden. Yeah, we make God promises and turn them into dry commands. Yes. I mean, there's the passage where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. This idea of the, the yoke is the, the harness for an ox or cattle that they would be strapped with in order to do hard work, hard work to keep them in control, but so that they could pull a plow or, or do some sort of work. And what Jesus is saying is my burden is not that. It's actually light. Yeah. And in that context, the word burden might mean Jesus' teaching. Yeah. So uh, what Jesus wants to do, he wants to re uh, reveal true meaning of the law. Reveal the true meaning of the yeah. law. And in this true meaning of the law, there's a freedom, there's joy. And Sabbath is a joy time. Yeah. When you can rest, when you can just be ref refilled, and when you can provide a space and opportunity to rest for other people that depend on you. And, you know, you, you may work in different capacity, but you, you, then you rest together. Yeah. And the, the equality uh, is, is involved and dignity.
Yeah, this is what I, I found very important. Yeah. And I was also thinking a lot about what does what my Christianity, my commitment to God mean to other people? What my uh, righteousness mean? Mm. So in the Bible, uh, my uh, righteousness of some people created opportunity for others to have a second chance. For example, Abraham, when he was taught, he, he, he was informed that God will destroy these two cities. So he started to argue with God. Hey, well, what if I find, uh, yeah. what, 20? Uh, 50, 50, 40, 30. So, and, and he could say, of course, God, you have to reveal, you know, your holiness, destroy them. No, he started to, to argue. And then uh, Joseph, when he learned that Mary is pregnant, uh, Interesting way. Yeah. And he could make this case, you know, and, 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 and court, and Mary could be stoned. But Joseph, because he was righteous man, he chose a norm of the law that was true to the law, but provided Mary a chance to leave. This is true uh, righteousness, where people can flourish, they can have freedom, and they can be blessed, not judged by my righteousness. Yes. Yeah, what Christ brings is opportunity to flourish, and God's law is designed for human flourishing. And yet, we can take it and twist it and cause oppression and cause it to be a burden. And I think we, even today, not just in our institutions, but we ourselves can take things that are meant to be good and and think of them or use them in a way that does not bring joy or thriving but can even be oppressive I have two things to share in connection to this text Uh, maybe it was uh, Tertullian or Augustine I don't remember who He, he said that a man is a factory of idols So we are constantly creating idols. And, you know, God gave us a gift of Sabbath to enjoy, and we we made it as as an an idol, which was oppressive uh, to other people. And during the Gospels, Jesus very often, he tries to heal person during Sabbath. And Pharisees, they were watching him. So they, it seems that they had like a professional deformation, you know, yeah. they, they have by the vocation, they are supposed to have to know the, like the, the spirit of the yeah. law, but somehow during the time it became very oppressive. It did. So, and second idea that's very important. It's an idea uh, of our identity. Um, Mark gospel in its narrative about temptation, a little bit have like different emphasis at Matthew one. In Matthew, when Jesus was baptized before temptation, it says, this is my son, beloved son. In Mark, it says, you are. At one point of my life, at one moment of my life, I realized how it is crucial to hear this voice, you are my beloved son. Mm. And in the beginning of our ministry, our, our journey with Jesus, especially if we are involved in a responsible ministry, ministry that has a lot of stress, it is crucial to know who you are, not for your followers, for your audience, but for Jesus. And you can't say this phrase, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath, if you are not sure what is your identity. Yeah, because it was a very dangerous statement. Jesus could be crucified just after this phrase. Yes, so because he's making a claim. Yeah, it is a very powerful claim. What is just to kind of break that down as quickly as you can? What is the claim he's making when he says the Son of Man? Well, uh, he says, uh, "I am." That's a that's a claim of deity. Yeah. So, and I think... And it goes back to the Old Testament. I think that uh, it, it's, if I remember correctly, it is in Mark's gospel where, where Jesus asked, for which uh, my action you want to kill, kill me? 
And he said, no, 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 we don't want to kill you because you heal somebody, but because you are being a man, making yourself a god. Yes, because you're claiming to be God. Yeah, so this is, this is a very powerful uh, statement. So why Jesus was able to do so? Because he knew who is who is. No matter the consequence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to say such statement in, uh, in the midst of religious leadership, uh, you have to be brave yeah. enough. Yeah, I think there's some powerful things at play here. Um, and I think we see what it says. And I think we see what it means that that the Sabbath in particular is meant to be a blessing. And that the tendency and what Jesus is, is forcing them to wrestle with is what is the true purpose of the Sabbath, that God has meant it to be a blessing, not a burden. And... There's also, a, I think, a subtle warning if I, when I read this to myself. Yeah. It, what, what are the things even currently that I might be making burdensome that God has intended to be blessing? Yeah. If I may add another, yeah. another idea. Uh, recently, I started to enjoy uh, Christianity and the gospel. I, I always enjoy it, but okay. I, I just I just started to see how beautiful and wise and beneficial the gospel is, and how it differs from other uh, religious systems. So um, we know that the Bible teach about that God is the center. Mm-hmm. I don't want to use this word theocentric, but it's only half of the truth. Because if we want to make God in the center, we can't do it without having a man in the center. Because Jesus' teaching says, and it's not Jesus, it's through the Bible, love God and love your neighbor. Right. I am amazed how uh, anthropocentric, I just don't know another English word how to say this. Man-centered. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is is uh, biblical teaching. Mm. So we can't serve God in authentic way if you do not care about our neighbors. If you don't love your neighbors. This is, this is amazing. Yes. So when we want to be really God-centric, we have to love other people. If we want to demonstrate our love for God, then we'll love people. Yeah. We'll love our neighbor. And it is impossible to demonstrate love to God without demonstrating love to people. Yes. This is amazing. This is this is the best way how we can change the world. Amen. And uh, uh, I am amazed that in Christianity, in the Bible, it says that God knows our names. Yes. It's a very strong statement, like who we are. Personally, we are known. Yeah, and then that God, he says, you are my children. It sometimes it might think, well, it's a wishful thinking, like, you know, who, who are you? So, yeah. Bible and the gospel provides us an amazing tool for transformation of the world. And when we are making difference, when our uh, righteousness help other people, God is glorified. Amen. Amen. So as you read this passage today, not as a seminary president, not as a professor, but as a disciple who is hearing the words of your God and King, what's your takeaway? How does this affect the way you you go about your rest of the day as you leave right now. If you would inform me ahead of time, I would give you five different levels. <laughs> give me so very uh, complex. Just the top of my mind, it's a warning. I ask myself, Ivan, do you have a professional deformation mm-hmm. as a long time Christian? Do you still remember the beauty of the spirit of God's commands or do you just care about forms yeah is there something that you're 
misunderstanding yeah. about what he has taught you and, and the blessings he's given you and turn those not into blessings. So I'm called to like, go back um, to study again, to refresh my understanding. And second, probably um, I ask myself, my righteousness is a blessing for other people or a problem of, of like I, my righteousness is oppressive for other people. Yeah. Do people who interact with me see hope mm. or judgment? Right. And third, because I am involved in a leadership position, which is very strong and difficult, right. I ask uh, myself, what about your identity? Who or what is building up your identity? Who or what serves as benchmarks for your understanding who you are? Because we live in a world that develops like uh, standards that everybody wants to meet. So what are these like principles right. or lighthouses that I'm referring to? Yeah. So I hear three things. And I think they're challenging me as well as you share them. Is there something in my walk with Christ, having been a Christian now for 25 years, are there ways in which I have allowed the teachings and the blessings of the gospel to become deformed, to become oppressive? Is there, is there a way in which my walk with Christ, am I causing that in the standards that maybe I impose on other people because of my walk with Christ to cause them to be oppressed by it? And I immediately think of my own kids as a pastor and a father and a husband, are there, are there ways in which I'm teaching them to follow Christ or even in my discipline of them, am I careful in the way that I apply God's truth so that they see him as life-giving and not as oppressive? That's a big challenge. It's very easy as a father to go, hey, God says... Don't do that. <laughs> and they're like, this God guy is always on my back. But for me to share the gospel and grace with them to the extent that they experience life and flourishing because of what God says. And then I think that third one, as a pastor, uh, it's easy to allow my identity to be wrapped up in my success as a preacher or what other people think of me, or how big my congregation is, and not simply to allow my identity to be defined as, I'm a son of the Most High God, and that's all that matters. And last thing. This is point number four? Yeah. You said five if you were given time, but with zero time, you still will come up with four. Because it just comes to my yes. mind, I'm giving it's amazing that God told to Jesus, you are in the beginning of his ministry, not at the end. Yeah. We are accepted by God before we accomplish something to him. Ah. And we are accomplished to him, great thing, because we are accepted first. You know, this sounds maybe very like a populistic and spiritual, but being in a leadership position for 10 years, I found that question of identity is crucial. Yeah. So, and sometimes I remind myself and I'm encouraged, Ivan, you are beloved son of God by default. Yeah. You, you not earn it. Amen. So it's a great encouragement for me. And I would say if you're if you're tuned into this podcast, hear that. What Yvonne just said, there is the reality that you come as you are. 
of the Lord. If you don't have a relationship with him, you don't have to go get cleaned up first. You don't have to somehow make yourself right. But you come as you are to him. And he loves you. (laughs) And because he loves you, that means you're something. It's his love for you and his delight in you that makes you truly who you are. And if you've been walking with the Lord for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, remember that. That it's not because of what you've accomplished for him that he loves you or delights in you. But it's just as it was at the beginning. He chooses to delight in you. Come as you are. Because all he wants is you. Not the stuff you can do for him. Not the stuff you have done for him. He just wants you. Thank you for tuning in to the Take and Read podcast. Thank you, Yvonne, for being my guest today. Thank you. Um, Again, if you have any questions, please email takeandreadpodcast at gmail.com. If you have questions for me or Yvonne, I'll make sure he gets those questions and I'll make sure to get answers from him. Um, But so glad you joined us today. Uh, I'm rocking this Take and Read podcast hat. I don't know if if uh, Little League, obviously, it probably wasn't a, a thing for you. But growing up as a kid, if I was on a sports team, my favorite day was the day we got our uniform. So I've always been a real big hat guy. I love hats. So I was really excited that when we launched this podcast, I was like, I got to make a hat. So I have this Take and Read podcast hat. I, I gave you one so you can take Thank it you. back. You'll be the only Ukrainian rocking the hat. But uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you would like a hat, you can go to 22beans.com. Uh, they'll be uh, hosted there and you can order them and they'll ship from there. Uh, the 22 Beans crew is, uh, yeah, the official coffee provider of the Take and Read podcast. It is actually what I drink every morning. I'm a fan of the Shepherd's Roast. That's what I, re- I drink when I'm um, uh, opening my Bible. Uh, it is not somehow like spiritual coffee. It is not holy coffee. It's just good coffee. And so I enjoy drinking that. But again, thank you, Yvonne, for being here. Thank Blessings you. as you travel back home. And maybe next time I have you on the podcast, I'll be in Ukraine and we'll uh, we'll broadcast from there. So thank you and blessings. Blessings.